1: Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where all our shows are also archived for your binge-listening pleasure wherever you are hunkered down in whatever bunker you find yourself. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so that once upon a time, when you could travel... You could find us anywhere on the planet, day or night, uh, and someday you will be able to again. Matt Robeson writes the blog, amoreperfectunionforum.com. He also writes for thealternet.org, a very provocative uh, news uh, venue on the internet. We're very pleased today to welcome Jason Zengerle as our guest here on Off The Record and Matt Robeson, tell us a little bit about Jason.
0: Jason Zengerle is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the political correspondent for GQ Magazine. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, Slate, Politico, New York Magazine, Yahoo, Mother Jones, Business Standard, Real Clear Politics, and The New Republic. I'm sure I've missed some. He's widely known for in-depth profiles of political leaders. He's covered people like Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Gillibrand, Joe Manchin, Bernie Sanders, and John McCain. And the New York Times Magazine just published his fascinating behind-the-scenes look at what Joe Biden and his team are up to with a title that asks the number one question that's on all of our minds, how do you run for president during a pandemic? Uh, Jason lives in Chapel Hill with his family. And Jason, welcome to Off the Record. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you guys.
1: And how are things down south? Are you all doing takeout barbecue?
2: <laughs> yes, eastern style North Carolina barbecue. Actually, our favorite barbecue place just uh, reopened last week for um, pickup, so we will be availing ourselves of that soon, but otherwise it's been a lot of, a lot of cooking.
1: See, we like to offer our, our listeners good news on this show, and there is our good news <laughs> for the yeah. dinner. I'm really <laughs> pleased to hear it. Now, how, tell me, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, Matt, I've been hanging around with Matt Robeson, who wants to be a famous political writer and is working on it. <laughs> um, he's really good. But, but how do you get that job? You don't interview for it. I mean, where did you start? And, and did you think when you started out in your career that you were going to end up uh, as a political writer? And, and how did it happen? So I
2: started at the New Republic magazine, um, you know, which is obviously a political magazine, except I didn't think I was going to be a political writer per se. I really liked the New Republic a lot. It was a magazine that, you know, I read in high school and uh, read in college. And I just, I enjoyed their kind of contrarian spirit and uh, their willingness to, puncture the conventional wisdom and go against it and it was I think especially at that age um you know that's that's really appealing <laughs> it was it was a little bit snotty uh and I think I liked that and I I really wanted to work there and I you know spent most of my college years applying to be an intern there and got turned down I don't know how however, however many times finally after college I managed to get an internship there and uh and then just stuck around for a long time but I was not really writing about politics per se while I was there. Um, I actually was sort of, I eventually kind of became the the magazine's kind of generalist writer where I, I would write about, you know, everything but politics. Um, I really like doing kind of long narrative features uh, about, you know, say like high school basketball in New York City or, you um, this crazy story involving the uh, inventor of the Heimlich Maneuver and uh, his, his really strange career. So I, I kind of like doing those sorts of stories, you know, albeit in the pages of a political magazine. And I would still occasionally write about politics here and there, but it wasn't my primary focus. But then once I left the New Republic, um, I kind of discovered that, you know, the, the, the stories that editors wanted me to write uh, tended to be political ones. And I think one of the reasons I didn't like writing about politics at the New Republic was writing about politics at a political magazine, or at least in that incarnation of the New Republic, you really could get lost in the weeds and you didn't necessarily have the broader kind of big picture um, view of things that you were afforded at more general interest magazines. So when I started writing about politics for New York Magazine or for GQ Magazine, I felt like... Those were places where you could write about politics in such a way that you could kind of you know really develop characters um, tell interesting narrative driven stories and i I discovered that my dislike of writing about politics had more to do with being in a political magazine than actually politics themselves and eventually, I think uh, you know I realized in part because it was what editors wanted me to do and what the, it was the assignments I was getting that I would just kind of give in to the uh, the idea that I'd be a political writer and, and that and I've been doing that, you know, now pretty
0: much just only writing about politics for about uh, 10 years or so.
1: Yeah. So
0: maybe you can take us inside some of the craft that goes into this from your most recent piece, which I think sets up kind of an interesting, it, it's this fascinating question. How do you run for president during a pandemic? But, how do you even report a story like that during a pandemic? I, I mean, maybe you can kind of take take our listeners behind the scenes. How did you do it, and and what is the scene like there in Delaware?
1: Yeah, well, I
2: mean, it was it was
0: like no story I've ever had to report before, and it was honestly
2: kind of daunting and frustrating because I mean, the way it normally works is you go, to, you go to a place, you go see people, you. You meet with them. You spend a lot of time talking to them. You spend a lot of time hanging around. You you see things, and then you you know describe them in writing. I mean, that's kind of how you traditionally do one of these stories. Um, and you know, there is there is certainly phone recording involved, and in there you know you are you oftentimes will reconstruct scenes, you know, things that you didn't witness yourself, but you are asking people to tell you about, and then you reconstruct them in your writing. But this was a story where. I had to do everything on the phone. Um, I mean, I could not leave my office in Chapel Hill and the people I was talking to couldn't leave, you know, their apartments or their houses or, you know, in the case of Biden, well, Biden didn't actually talk to me, but he obviously couldn't leave his basement. And I would, you know, I was, I was struggling to just come up with um, scenic details. So, I mean, literally when I would talk to people, I'd have to ask them, you know where where are you right now? <laughs> where are you talking to me from? And and sometimes that would, you know, elicit kind of an interesting answer. Uh, Rob Flaherty, who's the Biden campaign's digital director, whose job has you know grown in importance because of the pandemic, since the campaign is going to be all digital for the time being, you know, he told me the afternoon we were talking that he was speaking from the bathroom of his studio apartment because. He and his girlfriend, who also works for the Biden campaign, had gotten the studio apartment in Philadelphia with the idea that they would never really be there, at least not while they were awake. And then the campaign gets the campaign headquarters gets shut down and they have to work from their apartment and they would take turns. She would be in the main room and he would be in the bathroom. Then they'd switch because, you know, they couldn't work in the same room together if they were both talking. So little little details like that became you know, I was I was really happy when he told me that because I, I the piece needed some of that. Um, you know, beyond those kind of those are the sort of details that make magazine pieces oftentimes. Um, beyond that, though, I think what we were trying to do, or what I was trying to do, was it was a twofold. One, it was it was creating the scene of what just a day in the life of Joe Biden is like these days because I think that is interesting. Um, and you know, I was able to get some of that from talking to people on his campaign who if they themselves weren't actually in the houses in the Wilmington they were talking to him a lot and could sort of piece together what was happening. He actually has you know he's been doing this podcast where he talks a little bit about um, what his days are like and I was able to you know get some details from that and just try to give a sense of you know what he's doing there as as he's stuck at home and and give a sense about what he's feeling as well. I mean this is obviously a politician who really thrives on human contact and human interaction and personal connection and just how he has been trying to make up for that now that he's he's stuck in Delaware. And then the second part of the piece was not so much about Biden himself but about the whole campaign and how a campaign that in a lot of ways was really you know, almost like hidebound in its tradition. it had not really embraced a lot of the um, more uh, you know current techniques when it comes to digital messaging and digital organizing and you know and in the end of the day that hadn't really mattered in the democratic primaries. all these things that people thought were going to be crucial turned out not to matter. And at the end, you know Biden was able to win the Democratic nomination without these things. He's now because of this pandemic, having to rely on them in a way that he never expected to and how the campaign is really, they were already planning to get up to speed on this. They, they, I think the people and the senior levels of his campaign recognized that they were there were serious deficits in those areas and they needed to correct them for the general election. And you saw in an unusual way, normally when a candidate uh, wins their party's nomination, they don't do a complete uh, Overhaul their senior campaign leadership, but that's what Biden did. He brought in a new campaign manager after he was pretty much guaranteed of winning the nomination because even he recognized that there were going to have to be changes to be made to uh, to compete in November. Uh, the rest of the story was about those, those changes and how the campaign was reacting to just sort of the mechanical challenges of um, running a campaign in the pandemic. And then I guess there was one more part and that had to do with just the, the political and the communications challenges of, of this campaign now and how how the Biden people, I think believe, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, they think that the, the pandemic has only reinforced uh, what was going to be their message about responsibility and empathy and competence and all these things where they feel like they have a real advantage over Trump. And they think that the current, um, situation only you know highlights those strengths and makes them even more desirable in the eyes of voters so they're gonna they're gonna keep on hammering at those issues um and that was that was kind of the idea behind the piece and you know it was one of those stories that i think i you know i think if i'd written that piece in normal times i would have been kind of disappointed in it and thought like it wasn't that great a piece and i don't i still don't think it's that great a piece but i was i was so relieved in some ways that <laughs> I was able to pull it off because it showed me that, you know, okay, I, I can actually do this, um, you know, while I'm, while I'm stuck uh, in the same place and I can't travel and, you know, much less have children at home and things like that. It showed me it is possible to do. So it was reassuring in that sense.
1: You know, what, what's clear, Jason, when you read the story is um, what comes across very clearly is this fundamental tension about what 's going on, as you've said, and I think there was a quote from uh, a former Obama White House official that really goes to it when when uh, that official says that the crisis is perfectly set up for Biden because it shows his strong points, empathy competence as you've just discussed, and you know from my standpoint as a former congressman, I spent a lot of time with the vice president he campaign mm-hmm. for me when I ran for the Senate. We rode around in cars in New Hampshire uh, when the Recovery Act was lively, uh, talking about energy because he was managing the Recovery Act. Um, I, on more than uh, one occasion, have been uh, hugged and brought in close with the uh, two mm-hmm. hands on my shoulders, mm-hmm. as has my fabulous wife, Pego. Um, you know, this is a guy who who whose 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 whole reason for being is it seems to be one-on-one in person get up close sometimes as we know to his detriment but but in general people you know he's an old school politician that way there's that that that's what does it for him and now he's got to come alive through a digital medium. And as you've said, his, his, his folks uh, didn't get it before and they're getting up uh, to speed now. Do you think that, uh, my, and by the way, my mother uh, is very concerned. Uh, she, wants <laughs> to know, she wants to know, why aren't we seeing Joe Biden? Where is he? And I say, I tell her, mom, he's in his basement. She said, well, why? That's not good. He needs to get out. I said, mom, nobody's getting out. She said, well, I haven't been out in eight weeks. I said, I know, and neither is he. She says, well, somebody's got to do something. Can't you talk to him? So I, I haven't been able to, to talk to him. But is, is he getting a lot of uh, work on his digital presence from, from his team? And are they having to adapt uh, the digital medium to a more old school politician, or is he having to adapt to the digital medium? I think it's
2: a combination. I think um, it was interesting talking to some of his campaign staff, especially the ones who are more digitally literate. Um, you know, they were they were discussing about in some ways how bad a fit the digital medium is for him because it you know uh, the the, ba- the way a live stream works right is it's one person, voice or image or, you know, their message going out to many. There's, it's not designed for interactivity. And that, and that interaction is obviously sort of the root of of Biden's political success. So they've tried to devise a digital system for him that has kind of that interaction at its core, um, which, you know, has taken some technological jerry rigging on their part. But I think that 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 has been something that they've focused on wanting to try to um, bring out that that particular strength of his. And also, you know, uh, it's something that he just kind of, he prefers. So they, just the way that they've rigged up the setup for him, um, they have a kind of a, I think it's called a confidence monitor, which is, uh, you know, like a TV that sits in front of him. So he, if he is talking to someone, whether it's a remote interviewer or a supporter on a Zoom call or something, he sees like a big picture of them. It's literally just to facilitate, you know, try to trick his own mind into thinking that he's having this human interaction. Um, I also think that, you know, he had, they, they are also trying to translate his, his particular kind of brand to the internet. And I think in a lot of ways they, they were, they'd already done that. You know, in the 2012 Obama campaign, I was talking to someone who worked for, Max and, and she was saying, the, she was telling me about how they sort of created Biden's social media presence, you know, and they, to make him kind of seeming almost like, you know, this fun Uncle Joe kind of character who loved ice cream and dogs. And and there was that, you know, perception of him out there, certainly, um, you know, almost that that Onion article about him, you know, washing his Corvette, you know, in the, the front of the White House, when he wasn't wearing a shirt. Um, there was sort of that, there was that image of him out there. And I think there is kind of this fun, loving, fun, loving image of Biden. But the, uh, the Biden campaign today, I think is trying to figure out how they make him seem like a fun, carefree guy at this very serious moment. And they don't want to overdo the ice cream stuff and the dog stuff. Um, and they're trying to sort of figure out how to get his, his essence across online and the thing that they've really settled on is this idea that, um, he's going to be the opposite of Trump that, you know, one of the reasons Trump does so well on the internet is because he's so inflammatory and he's mean and he's cruel. And that, that really plays well online. And the Biden campaign's idea is basically there, there are two things that are successful online. There's the really mean stuff. And then there's the really sappy stuff. You know, there's the YouTube videos of, um, You know, soldiers returning home and getting standing ovations in airports or surprising their kids or grandmas doing socially distanced birthdays. And that's what they kind of want to lean into with Biden. They want to emphasize that side of him, thinking that that will do well online the same way those sappy videos do well on YouTube. And they, you know, they they compete with the really nasty stuff on YouTube that Trump would be more familiar with.
1: We're talking to Jason Zengerly, whose piece on Joe Biden running for president of the pandemic was just published in the New York Times Magazine. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We'll be back after a short break so you can hear from the folks who keep our station on the air. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson of WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. Podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we are talking with Jason Zengerle, uh, a political writer of prominent note, whose piece, How Do You Run for President During a Pandemic, about Joe Biden, was recently published in the New York Times Magazine. We are going behind the scenes into the political machinations of what it takes to transform a one-on-one star into a digital president. So, Jason, you, you know I mean, we're, you, you brought up at the end of the last segment uh, the difference in personality between <laughs> the uh, cheeto-in- chief and, uh, and uh, Vice President Biden. Um, And I think nothing could be more stark in its contrast in terms of one guy who's aggressive, inflammatory, ballistic, and uh, confrontational, and another who simply doesn't come across that way. He comes across as sincere and caring, and he can be strong. He can show his temper. Clearly, he's got uh, he's, got a famous, he's got a famous temper. I mean, there, there have been gaffes. Um, uh, and, and, and meanwhile, Trump is trying to make Sleepy Joe stick. Um, yeah. what's, you, what's your sense of it? Can Biden successfully adapt? And can his campaign put him on an equal footing or a footing with Trump where in the digital world, which is totally different, um, he can he can compete, and I ask that question as somebody who has a face made for radio. <laughs> I think that
2: the campaign thinks they can put him on equal footing, um, but I think they would they would define equal footing maybe differently than some of their critics. I think one thing that drives people in the campaign a little bit batty, and you know, I think it, it's one thing if it's coming from your mother; it's another thing if it's coming from like David Axelrod. I think they get frustrated. With uh, democratic strategists outside the campaign who are saying, you know, we see Trump all the time. We need to see Biden just as much. And I think the the Biden people would respond that, you know, quantity is not quality, and they do not want to try to match Trump's volume, both in terms of like the rhetoric and just the amount of it. I don't think that they believe or they don't believe that they need to do that. They want to pick their moments, and and honestly, I think that you know during this crisis, they've seen the benefit of of, being, of keeping a lower profile. Um, I think that you know there's some question about whether you can do that between you know from here until November, but certainly Trump has not been able to stay out of his own way. Um, I think there was a time when you had a lot of Democrats being very worried about these nightly press conferences that we ha- He was having. Um, you know and trump himself was bragging about the ratings but obviously they they were hurting his standing in the polls and so much so that he eventually stopped holding them i think the biden people were watching those press conferences at the time and and, and they recognized them as a bad thing for trump i think sooner than certainly sooner than trump did um, but also sooner than a lot of other democratic strategists did as well i think there were people who were concerned that biden was ceding too much space to trump and as it turned out That was actually a good thing for Biden. So I I don't think the Biden campaign thinks that Biden can spend the next five months in the basement and doesn't have to emerge at some point and doesn't have to go toe to toe with Trump at some point. But but for now, I think they're very comfortable letting Trump, you know, talk as much as he does and not feeling like they need to respond to him every time.
0: So speaking of sort of the Democratic strategistocracy uh, that's out there and some of the cross currents and conversations that go on in, in Democratic circles, one of those discussions that's emerged in the last week or so, and I think Liz Smith, the former communications director for the Buttigieg campaign, has been sort of leading this charge, is around does the Biden campaign and, and, and specifically around the convention, but broadly, need to use this moment to really rethink what an all-virtual campaign looks like, and break down some of the uh, approaches that have been used. Up till now, it seems like a lot of what's been done in the digital space has been built around conventional campaign communications methods that are sort of ported online or digitized. But there might be a whole different way of doing things. And I think, you know, Liz was suggesting, well, maybe you should redo the convention as a set of documentary features that uh, that runs each night or uh, some some more interactive experience. Ha- Did you get any sense in talking to the Biden team that they're really beginning to think outside the box about what the next five or six months will look like, what the convention would look like, or are they mostly focused on just trying to do basic blocking and tackling of a campaign over the Internet?
2: They were very they were very reluctant to talk about anything regarding the convention on the record. I think because when I was reporting my story, I think there was still a discussion going on inside you know, the, the upper ranks of the Democratic Party about whether you're going to have a convention or not, whether you're going to have a real convention versus a virtual convention. I think now, it, I think everybody pretty much realizes you're not going to have a real convention. So they were pretty reluctant to talk about that on the record, you know, off the record. I did get the sense in what they were discussing that they were thinking a bit outside the box. They, they had ideas about how you could make a virtual convention compelling. Um, I don't know if they were quite as outside the box as some of the stuff Liz has been talking about, but they, they seemed to recognize that you, you couldn't just hold, if you're going to do the convention virtually, you couldn't just do it. Like you would do a regular convention without people, you know, just have a bunch of speeches. You would need to do more than that, and I think that they they were starting to think about ways you could present that in a in a compelling fashion. Um, I do think that a lot of the the suggestions that are being made to the Biden campaign about you know how they should. Do this campaign digitally in ways that they should think outside the box. A lot of them like really aren't practical, and it's it's kind of it was interesting reporting the piece because you know I I am not a particularly savvy person when it comes to digital strategy. I mean it's it's a miracle that I can you know make phone calls on my cell phone a lot of the time. I, I think Biden might be more technologically competent than I am, but I when I was starting this piece, you know I heard a lot of ideas from people you know outside the campaign about how you know Biden should do you know he should take over Fortnite and do Minecraft and you know port his campaign to those places and and I even heard some of that from people on the Biden campaign the people who were suggesting that oftentimes though were you know older and didn't even really know what Fortnite was, or didn't really even know what TikTok was. They just knew it was something that kids were doing and and Biden needed to be there. But when you actually sort of press them for details, they had no idea what that would actually entail. And then when you did talk to people who did understand what those platforms were and, and were digitally savvy and were technologically savvy, there were all sorts of reasons that Biden couldn't do campaign. I mean, he couldn't do organizing on Fortnite because he you wouldn't be able to get permission from Fortnite's, um you know the creator to actually do that there there are all sorts of structural impediments and technological impediments to doing these things that people were saying you know he should really do because they're outside the box so i think they they do get criticized a bit for just kind of doing basic blocking and tackling and bringing that to the digital realm but at the same time i think some of the things that people want them to do just really are not all that practical and, and wouldn't really have any value. So it's probably finding some kind of happy medium. I mean, they are, you know, certainly in the primaries, they were very conservative in how they, they handle digital strategy. And I think they, they recognize they can't be that conservative in the general election, but, um, but I think some of the more, you know, out there ideas are probably just not even feasible.
1: You know, Jason, it's interesting. Uh, I think they were conservative, not only with their digital strategy, they were just conservative, period. Um, When when he came to New Hampshire, where he didn't do very well, they were so conservative that um, nobody showed up to see him. And they were so (laughs) conservative that he didn't look all that comfortable or happy being there. And they didn't seem to want him out out with people very much. Um, and so a lot of, you know, everybody in New Hampshire uh, is a political strategist. We have 1.3 <laughs> million, million residents and 1.29 uh, political strategists in New Hampshire. And people were very concerned after New Hampshire. Of course, we saw what happened. And I will say that in terms of what I'm hearing from you, that you heard from the Biden folks about their approach to a convention, New Hampshire just held a a digital state convention. And there was the usual uh, speeches uh, by Zoom interrupted by delays. There were people who clearly had shot cell phone videos uh, introducing themselves to democratic activists. And there was one really good piece of of work that came across uh, better than anything else and that was what appeared to be a professionally shot video of a candidate who was not one of the most prominent candidates for executive council who happens to be a guy who runs a coffee shop. And it was a professionally shot video of him talking while he was preparing uh, coffee to put in a coffee tray to take out to his van to go and deliver people um, uh, who, had, who had ordered coffee. And he, he's really good and comfortable on camera, but the quality of the, of the shot, the way he was able to convey his message and appear to be just a regular guy going about his work was very advantageous uh, to his presentation. And it raised a lot of eyebrows and got him a lot of notice. So it would be interesting, and I don't know whether you picked up that whether or not the Biden campaign is gonna use a lot of, let's call it storytelling in their digital campaigning, as opposed to just Joe as a talking head. Um, are they in touch? Did you get a sense that they really wanted, wanted that they understood the the power of storytelling and a, as a digital strategy,
2: I think I think for something like the convention, you will certainly see that. Um, you know, I think that that they're basically even if they was doing a real convention, that would, they're you're producing just a TV show for that. Um, I, I that's an, inter- that's an interesting question about the rest of the digital strategy. I mean, obviously, you know, the, those that that takes a lot more, you know, effort and money. Um, you. I think one thing they're trying to do is just get him on as many platforms as possible and just get as much content out there as possible um and so you know those the that kind of professional approach that really sort of polished storytelling approach um can it can be a little bit more labor intensive and time intensive and probably harder to do too too much of it but i think that they you know they want to they want to get more voices out there um you know, one thing that they talked about, which isn't quite storytelling, but it, it has a component of it, is while the campaign is purely digital, while they can't do rallies, they can't travel. You know, they're, they, they talked about trying to sort of produce a Joe Biden TV show, basically. That was the way they discussed it. And, and one aspect of that TV show would be introducing characters. And they wanna to try to make characters out of you know, some of the campaign people. Um, so you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon, who's the new campaign manager, she'll become a more, more sort of forward-facing figure. Like she'll do more online, she'll do more kind of you know, features on their website. Other campaign workers will as well. And they want to try to bring them into the messaging strategy so they'll become familiar to Biden supporters and, uh, you know, and just undecided voters as well. And just this idea that, so it's not just Joe Biden talking heads sitting in front of a bookshelf. Um, they want to bring in other people as well. And that, that's not quite the same thing as, as storytelling, but it's, uh, it's part of it. I mean, one of the challenges with that storytelling that you're talking about is i mean literally the technological challenge of filming biden um you know he the 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 studio they constructed for him is in his basement um it's run by a remote camera operator in sioux city iowa because you know because of the health restrictions you can't have a film crew come into his house so to do a kind of good storytelling you know video with joe biden in it you would probably need a professional film crew to to follow him to show him and right now they can't do that. I think they they were actually talking about, you know, trying to get either himself or his wife to film some stuff on their iPhones uh, of each other. And I think they're not quite there yet. They have done some videos I noticed in the last couple of weeks where he's not in the basement, where there are a couple of political aides who are allowed into the house and they've been filming those, uh, those videos. I guess these aides have been filming them on their iPhones, but you know, they're very, they're not professional looking, they're not polished. You know, I think though there's, I think there are people outside the Biden campaign and even inside the Biden campaign who don't mind that lack of polish and they basically just want to, they would, in some ways, they think having that unpolished look would actually be kind of compelling and it would be a story in itself and that they would like him to sort of, you know, take a camera around the house and follow himself or whatever. But, um, But it wouldn't be kind of the real sort of professional grade storytelling I think you're talking about.
1: We're talking with Jason Zengerli, who is a political writer, recent piece in the New York Times Magazine called How Do You Run for President During a Pandemic? Matt Robeson and I are here on Off the Record. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLA and an FM streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can relive some of our fabulous episodes, go way back in the Wayback Machine and listen to the summit between Vladimir Putin and President DJT, he who shall not be named. Listen to the various times that Vladimir Putin has interrupted our broadcast with questions. And from Moscow, he's had lots of advice too, most of which Donald Trump has taken. And you, we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so when you get to travel again, you can take us with you. You can listen to us anywhere, anytime your personal digital device wants to light up the night with off the record. So, Jason Zigerly, we're, um it's a fascinating conversation about how Joe Biden can campaign in the digital era. Yeah, and I, actually, I wanted to take it
0: even a little bit broader. So, I mean, you know, you've you've been a close observer for a long time of of the political scene, and you know, you've you've talked to some of the leading figures of the last couple decades in American politics. And it felt, in reading your most recent article, like there was sort of this backdrop of of two things going on, and one's obviously the pandemic, but the other implicit issue seems to be that politics is changing; it's evolving. Um, not just all the digital stuff that we've been talking about, but all of the polarization, the fundamental uh, organization of the parties, what's driving them, the, the anger factor in American politics. What do you think, broadly, have been the biggest changes in the last decade or so as you've been so closely embedded in the political scene? And are they changes for the better or for the worse? Well, certainly polarization. I mean, that, that's
2: inescapable. And um, the biggest change has been the, the, you know, the capture of the Republican party by, by one man, um, by Trump. I mean, it's really, uh, that's the thing that you just can't avoid. Um, I think the democratic party has, you know, certainly experienced some of that polarization. I mean, you know, democratic voters are more democratic than they were before. So I think that um, in terms of the, the anger. I think that you know it was one of the more surprising things about the Democratic primary that was just completed. I think that a lot of people, including myself, um, did not did not think that Biden was particularly well suited for the party where it is now, and that turned out to be wrong. Um, I think that you know I thought that I didn't think that the Democratic Party would nominate a a Trump like figure. But I thought that they would nominate someone who was, you know, more populist, um, more of a break from the past, uh, in a way that, in some ways, mirrored what had happened to the Republican Party, and that that just turned out not to be the case. And I think that, you know, there are there are reasons for that, and I think a big one that you know complicates the picture a little bit is just the the overwhelming desire to beat Trump and a willingness to. Temper their own expectations, their own preferences when it comes to a candidate to to vote for someone who they feel is a safer bet to beating Trump. I think that obviously helped Biden, but um, but the the biggest change in terms of what I've seen in the last ten years is just what's happened to the Republican Party. It's just it's unrecognizable from what it was just four years ago, um, and uh, the degree to which um, you know I'm sure. Paul, Paul can speak this even better, but the degree to which people on the Hill have just completely um, Republicans on the Hill have just gotten in line—that um, that's been gotten in line behind someone who they you know were just absolutely contemptuous of uh, four years ago—is has really been something to see.
1: Yeah, it's been pretty amazing to watch uh, Republican leadership fall like bowling pins. Uh, over the past few years of the Trump presidency. Uh, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, Jeff Flake. I mean, you, 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 there's, a, there's a, a long list of people who from my interactions with them, uh, I, I didn't agree with any of them on policy, but but they were people I could talk with. They were people who were reasonable people in their personal interactions. And I think one of the things that, that at least as an outside observer, I'm, I'm seeing is that that being a reasonable person doesn't get you anywhere in the Republican Party. In fact, if you appear to be a reasonable person, you're going to get primaried from some guy in camo carrying an AK-47 yelling about um, Everything from uh, open up my barbershop to uh, don't don't shoot me up with any of your vaccines. I mean, it's it's literally become an echo chamber for uh, a lot of folks who who's who've, who've got very very extreme views, and as we've seen, this president revels in inciting those kinds of uh, extreme views. What? you've got this uh, extreme phenomenon as president and this party that, as you said, has, has fallen in line. What do the Biden folks fear most? What's their biggest concern about what they're going to face? Uh, and how are they preparing for it?
2: Oh, I think they're worried about, <laughs> about the press. I think they're, I think they're worried about um, the press, you know, feeling the need to give equal treatment to uh, any kind of uh, slip up or scandal that, that Biden suffers. Um, you know, the, there's so much going on with, with Trump and with the administration, and it's just a fire hose and you ultimately kind of, you can't keep up necessarily what's happening. Whereas, you know, if, if, you know, I think so today or yesterday with the unmasking, I'm sure the Biden, you know, the Biden campaign does not like all the attention that's being given to that and worried that, you know, the the unmasking story will be given equal prominence to Trump's res- pandemic response. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of a hang, there's a, still a serious hangover from 2016 about, about Hillary's emails. And um, I think you saw some of this in the way the Biden campaign was Dealing with the the Reed story in the early days of it, just trying to ignore it, and then finally taking it head on. I think there's just a real concern on their part that the the press is gonna is gonna, you know, mess things up again. And obviously, look, every campaign will complain about the press. That, that's nothing new. Um, but I think there are some legitimate issues there in terms of how how we cover the candidates and and the weight uh, we afford certain certain issues. And that's something that they are. They, they will talk about at great length with reporters. Um, you know, they're working the reps, obviously, but I think there's there's a real legitimate uh, concern
0: there. Is there a trend out there that isn't getting talked about enough? You know, we talked about polarization. That's sort of like the big headline of the last yeah. 10 years about what's happened in politics. But, you know, you're you're really embedded in a lot of this stuff. What, what are you picking up that you think people should should be paying more attention to or your your political journalist colleagues should be writing up more I'm still amazed that people actually
2: want to go into this <laughs> or want to go into politics I mean that honestly I think I think increasingly one thing that I've been sort of discouraged by in recent years is the the quality and caliber of people who want to run for office in my mind gets lower and lower <laughs> And I think that's discouraging. Um, I think you have, politics has created an incentive structure um, where in a lot of ways it's attracting the worst kinds of people and wrong people for the job. And I I find it increasingly difficult to, you know, identify, you know, new, new politicians, new candidates for office who, you know, have the right, the right motivations the right intentions for getting into it and that is that's a serious problem long term um if we you know if you can't get good people to run for office uh it's it's really going to affect the quality of uh, government down the line and I, I have been discouraged uh just by what i've seen about people who are being you know who are being drawn to it and uh, why they want to get into it and you know, obviously some of it's like what you have to do to win now um, you know, it's. I think it's a little bit more. It's a lot more pronounced on the Republican side right now. But the uh, the message you have to deliver, the stance you have to take, just the the quality of your message, a lot of the times, so the the content of your message is really. It can be really, you know, damaging. And I think there are some people who don't want to go down that road, and therefore decide not to go into politics at all. So you're you're attracting a certain kind of person, and that I think will have a real um,
0: negative impact long term. All right, so since we can't go out on a down note for our listeners like that, uh, let me flip that on you for a second and sort of ask you the inverse. Is there anyone who's really stood out to you? You do so many political profiles. Is there anyone who you've walked out of an interview with them and you've said, wow, she is brilliant. She's really interesting. Or, you know, this guy is someone we should be paying attention to. Or is there something going on that, that you kind of think of to, to counteract the doldrums when they set in? You know, this is so the most impressive politician I've ever
2: met. The guy who I sort of left my time with him thinking, you know, better of him than I went in before was, was a, was a, he's now in his seventies, a state Senator in Alabama, who you will have never heard of named Hank Sanders. So I think, you know, was in it for all the right reasons is a real kind of, you know, moral giant and a really impressive guy. Uh, he's obviously not, he's not an up and comer. Um, This is not someone I've met, but someone who I've been interested in and just kind of been following him from afar. The lieutenant governor of Utah (laughs) is a guy named Spencer Cox, who's now running for governor. Oh yeah, And he's in a primary, he's in the Republican primary against John Huntsman. And I think, you know, Cox has been a really interesting figure over the last few years. Um, He's taken some pretty you know brave stands for a you know Republican Mormon official in Utah on um, LGBT issues he's been very um, you know he hasn't, he hasn't he hasn't gone out of his way to attack Trump but he's he's made it clear that he disagrees with Trump and he's picked his moments to offer a dissenting voice and i think he the the, the Republican primary in Utah the way it's shaped up i mean Huntsman is not a perfect sort of you know national kind of Fox News candidate but he he's clearly someone who has sort of more of that national profile even though he's a long-standing utah politician and i think it'll be a real interesting contest there whether a, a more homegrown type like cox can you know reflect sort of the unique qualities of the republican party in utah versus kind of what's happened in you know, towards the nationalization of the republican party everywhere else in the country and i think that will be uh an interesting thing to watch i mean that's that's the thing that to me is one of the more interesting kind of facets of all this. And it goes hand in hand with the polarization. It's the nationalization of these parties. And these, you know, these states have kind of lost, the politicians in these states have lost their sort of individual characters. And it's now just kind of this, you know, homogenous cast of characters uh, from each, you know, both Democrats and Republicans. So I'm looking for instances where you actually have some distinction based on where the person is from, where they're running, and 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 that that Utah race, and Cox himself is someone who I'm interested in and, and, you know, following from from my house in North Carolina.
0: I really, I would actually like to go out there and write about him and
2: hope to at some point, but can't do it right now.
1: Well, Jason, uh, speaking to you from New Hampshire, up here where we make maple syrup and mountains, I would invite you any time to come on up and see what happens up here in New Hampshire when we <laughs> politic. Uh, it's quite interesting. The characters are. Uh, fairly eccentric, if I might say so myself, I being one of them eccentric characters, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of politics that gets practiced. We love our democracy. We have the fourth largest legislative body in the English-speaking world after the United States Congress, the Indian Parliament, the British Parliament, and then there's the House of Representatives in New Hampshire. So you could come <laughs> up any time. We're happy to have you. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We've been speaking with Jason Zengerle, a terrifically smart political writer who's just uh, published a piece in the New York Times Magazine called How Do You Run for President During a Pandemic? Jason, thanks for joining us. We really had a great time. Thanks a lot. We'll be back after a very short break for a very short wrap up. Don't go away. We're back. It's off Thanks. the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLA and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Well, Matt, Jason Zeggerly had some interesting things to tell us about what's going on behind the scenes in the Biden basement.
0: Definitely recommend that article to all our listeners. It is fascinating.
1: It's a fascinating article, and uh, you can read Matt Robeson's thoughts on thealternate.org, and he blogs at a amoreperfectunionforum.com. Folks, thanks for listening. We appreciate the sponsors who keep this great station on the air. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.